0: Head over to jensheitland.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and sign up. But now, let's get started with the podcast. Magic, 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 magical... Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Jens Show where I connect the dots of innovation and entrepreneurship. My name is Jens Heitland and welcome to the show. Today's guest is a manager in the innovation lab of Starbucks in Seattle. He's the former co-create development leader in IKEA, and he was an open innovation strategist at first build, one of the innovation success stories of GE. Please welcome to the show, Justin Berger. Thanks so much Jens, thanks for having me. Great to have you with me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So tell us a bit about yourself. Who are you? What's going on in your world? Yeah, so
1: it's been, well, quite a 2020 rolling into 2021 now. So I feel like things are moving faster than ever. But originally studied mechanical engineering. So super passionate about kind of the technical side, data, math and science have always been natural for me. I've always had a little bit of passion for arts and creativity. Um, That was mostly through music when I was younger. But decided to study engineering, got a job at GE um, right out of college, um, and absolutely loved uh, being an engineer, working on systems and parts. Thought that was going to be the rest of my life. And then as I started working more closely with some customers on, on design of products and understanding what people want, I realized how tough it is for a big company to get the machinery going and to really respond and listen to what people want. As an engineer, I felt so removed from the people who were using the things that I was working on. So I got a little frustrated through that experience, but had an opportunity to pivot to a little startup within GE, um, looking at exactly that. How could we get closer to customers and involve community in the design of what we were doing? So that kind of completely flipped the trajectory of my career, flipped my mind altogether from being specifically an engineer into moving into innovation a little bit. And then from there, I've had a chance to work with a few different big companies. So I went to IKEA from GE, um, and did a co-creation initiative within their product design team. And now I'm at Starbucks um, in an innovation lab, which is looking a little beyond product design, which is exciting for me into business models, supply chain, kind of the whole business. Um, how, can we, how can we innovate and how can we roll these, these methods out to the whole company so that everybody's thinking this way? Yeah. So you've you're grown up in the U.S.? Correct, yes. Grew up in
0: Northwest Ohio in the Midwest of the U.S., How was it going from the U.S. towards Sweden, which is like comparable, fairly small country?
1: Yeah, it's been really interesting, my geographic journey. So the Midwest, I'd say, is really similar to Smallland in Sweden, Mm. in that it's very humble people, very hardworking. And I think some elements of that, and that's where IKEA's offices still are. um, And I think you see that reflected in... Maybe naively, I I value hard work and effort, and I want to feel like I've put some effort in. So if something's too easy, I typically don't appreciate it. Mm. So that piece of it felt really, really normal. But I think a lot of like just Scandinavian norms um, in the US, we much more value the individual and individual rights. And I think most of the Nordic countries think more about the collective. If you think about their their higher taxes, they're just willing to support each other and think of things communally. Mm. What's been really interesting is now coming to Seattle, Washington, where I live now, there's a lot of Nordic roots. So it almost feels like it's like geographically not at all between Ohio and Sweden. But culturally, I feel like I've landed right in the middle. And pretty similar, you see that reflected in the companies where GE, like super capitalist company, very aggressive a lot about the profit and how do we make money at ikea sometimes it was all about the collective and making sure we were all happy and and really values rich in thinking about how do you make life better for people i see that in starbucks a lot being kind of that hybrid of being positive for people and then also positive for profit so it feels like in a lot of ways this is
0: kind of where where i've been working toward and right in the middle of all of my experiences then you you mentioned that that you have been in the startup of of GE and that was kind of going from a large corporation more towards a startup way of thinking what's your view on entrepreneurship from that time
1: yeah i think it was so hard for me to think about at GE we spend years just talking and planning and and a standard project typically takes took like 18 months But what we'd say is 18 months. What you don't see is there were probably three to five years of planning and groundwork that got laid before you could even do that. And when we were looking at the startup, it was a team of 20. So super small and nimble and just how quickly not only we could move, but more the expectation to move. It just blew my mind in that it wasn't that we needed to align everyone or if we did need to align, it was 20 people and we'd have a stand up every day and you could get that alignment in five minutes instead of months of meetings and going around. And then the, the other big change for me there was just thinking at GE, I had my engineer hat and that, that said mm. exactly what I was going to do every day. For the next two years, I probably knew what my workload was going to be for the next, mm. like just foreseeable future. And then when I went to First build, there were only 20 of us. And suddenly, like I was wearing all kinds of hats, and, and and your hats might change depending on the day. You never knew what was going to come, but I really liked having able being able to to jump in, and I wasn't worried about stepping on anyone's toes there. There, there were no, like we call them sacred cows or, or no, no kingdoms. You were going to step on somebody's area of responsibility. It was just about how do we collectively get things done and move forward. And it didn't matter if it was your job or not, if it needed to be done, whoever, whoever could jump in and help you could. Yeah. And I felt like, I just love that the team had so much ownership where, If GE made profit, I don't know that what I was doing as an engineer was making a difference. But at First Build, everything we did, I could see the piece that I played in it. So I love that small team size and just feeling your accomplishments reflected as what the group can achieve.
0: Yeah. Can you give a little bit of background about the story of First Build and how that came together for the people who don't know First Build? (laughs) Definitely. So
1: super interesting. Basically, one of the struggles we had, I was working in innovation at GE Appliances. And what we found was we would put all kinds of, we would develop new ideas, new prototypes, and they'd sit on the shelf and we'd try to sell them into product management. But if you look at a typical product management cycle, especially at GE, their career cycle was about two years in role, which means we launch appliances once a year, they would get two launches. And if you think about rolling out anything innovative, you have maybe a 10% chance of success. So nobody in their right mind, if you only get two chances to launch a product, is going to take a huge risk because you've only got two years before. Like You're never going to get to the next level in your career if you have a flop. So what we saw as innovation in, in appliances was they'd get a little bit bigger every year, or we'd add like a slightly new color, like off-white. And that was the level of innovation that was comfortable. But we recognize, like, if you look at how quickly smaller competitors were moving into the market, and then just technology in general, it wasn't moving as quickly in appliances. We saw there was an opportunity I think at the same time, GE was working with Eric Reese and rolling out lean startup methods um, in what we called FastWorks, and that was a corporate initiative. And then there was also a meeting that happened between Jeff Immelt, who is the CEO of GE Corporate at the time, and Local Motors, which was a a small car company um, doing community-based design of vehicles. Um, And they got really excited about how we could work together. And with appliances being the more consumer-facing business, we were tapped to work with local motors and kind of figure out, okay, how how do we do this community-based design? And then at the same time, how do you tie in FastWorks principles um, and look at how do you design, build, and sell appliances in very low volumes? So basically the the model we used at first build was designed with the community build in a micro factory that was literally attached to a maker space that we opened up in Louisville open to the public Mm -hmm. and then sell in low volumes So at first build, we only wanted to make up to a thousand of something and see if it worked, which is completely different thinking where to do a program at GE, you need to make at least a million of something and you're never going to take the risk to do a million of something innovative at first build. If we did something terrible, we only made a thousand of it and we quietly retired it. But when you're launching 10 products a year, you can, you can take some failures and just do them as quite quickly and cheaply as possible so that you find the successes.
0: Yeah. Do you know if then the success stories or the success products will will have been built into the the bigger engine of GE afterwards?
1: That's definitely the intent. I think one of the interesting things we learned was the the way we set up First Build was kind of like a little island outside of GE. Mm -hmm. So the really nice thing was you weren't encumbered or slowed down by any of the processes But I think it it created the issue of a little bit of like not involved, not invented here issues that happen. Mm. So one of the issues was we didn't understand the context of the business and why things hadn't worked or some important lessons. But there was nobody at the business who really wanted to catch those products when they launched. So I can give you a quick example if it's helpful. Yeah, please. The most successful, most exciting product we came up with was a Nugget Ice Maker which Americans love ice naturally. So that's where my head goes. But when we were thinking about a new ice maker in a refrigerator, people don't buy refrigerators very often. So it's really hard to test that feature. They don't buy them online. They typically go to their local hardware store. So when we looked at like, okay, we can't test this feature in a refrigerator and expect to get any meaningful data at the volumes we could produce. So we decided to do a countertop unit, something that we could so- small sell less than 500 bucks and see if people were interested in it for their bar or their kitchen. And then the other cool unlock we had was we decided to do a crowdfunding campaign. So it wasn't that we even needed to make them before we knew if people wanted them. You could yeah. pre-order pre-order the, the ice maker online. And if we got to a certain threshold, we would produce it. So I think we were hoping to meet $500,000 in sales. I mean, we ended up getting to $3 million in sales over the course of a campaign. That's not um, bad. <laughs> not bad at all. Like huge indicator, great pocket of interest. But now if you look at, okay, we've got this countertop nugget ice maker that's selling like crazy. At the time, GE Appliances didn't even do small appliances. They only made large installed appliances. Uh-huh. So now we've got this little startup engine and it became like half of our team's job to deliver these ice makers and continue production because nobody at GE wanted it. Like there wasn't a place for it to land. But if we fast forward last year, GE launched a small appliances division and now that has absorbed Opal and is taking it much further than we could have because they've got all the power and the scale of GE. So I think if you look at like the, the trajectory to me that handoff in my head was going to happen so quick like once we completed the crowdfunding campaign we've got a great success they're going to want it but the system just didn't quite know how to make them work together but it did
0: figure itself out eventually then from there you you went into slightly different position as well around products but which was more about like how can you co-create again in a different setting so what what brought you to IKEA and, and how was that working with with an intrapreneurship and innovation lens.
1: Yeah, and it was actually like perfect timing in, in the story and trajectory here. For me personally, I think I always wanted to, so GE, my role was based in Louisville, Kentucky, which was only about five hours from where I grew up. I think I wanted to push myself personally to see more and really immerse in other cultures to just encourage my way of thinking at GE, I was surrounded by white male engineers. Like that was the reality I lived in. Uh And then recognizing like, I think all innovation and creativity comes from diversity. I needed to push myself to get out of created. And when an opportunity came along to move to Europe, like super exciting IKEA was looking at setting up co creation within product design as well. So it was right in line with what I had been doing um, and kind of a dream to go live in Sweden for a little while and immerse in that experience. Hmm. One of the really interesting things about the way it was structured, the way we structured co creation at IKEA, was it functioned more as a support function for the rest of the business. And it was a lot about starting with the needs that the business owners had or the the, the business units within Ikea and kind of coaching them through the innovation process. Hmm. So it was so frustrating to me coming from first build where it was like 20 of us, we wanna do something like figure it out. You could, you could go so quickly and I loved that speed. And then when we got to Ikea, it was like, okay, now we've got to wait for what a department wants And they're not thinking about disrupting. They're again, thinking a little more incrementally in their product Mm -hmm. design and coaching them. But what I loved was our success rate was through the roof because like we were taking smaller bets, but we were taking a lot of them and you had so much buy-in from the organization for what we were doing, so much power that they could scale things quickly, that it was kind of the complete opposite (laughs) experience and work culture, but just
0: a different space along that spectrum. Yeah. So... If you if you take a step back and you could build an organization, build an innovation engine from a co-creation perspective on your own, how would you set that up that you kind of take all the good things of all the worlds you have worked in?
1: Yeah, I think the ideal, it's almost you really need a spectrum. And I think you, you need kind of a, a small innovation team carved out But I think within that small innovation team, you need an even smaller group. So maybe the the innovation team of 20 to 30 people feels about right. Everybody still feels ownership of projects. You can move. And I think the primary role should be supporting the organization in in a little bit of change management and innovation and how you Mm -hmm. coach back. But then I think within that team, you should have three or four people or rotate assignments on those moonshots. What are those huge innovations you can take? And I think the beauty of that system is the whole group, the whole innovation team gets credibility for everything they're doing for the organization and is able to carve out so you can take bigger risks and bigger swings with those few people. But I think it's, you've really got to free them up and let them really chase after those moonshots. They should only have like a 5% chance of success. Mm -hmm. But I think the story you tell the lessons you learn and how, any failure, as long as you're doing it cheaply and learning and getting through as many projects as possible, you're going to learn so much, it's well worth it. But I think that's kind of an ecosystem where you're, you're able to do the exploration, but you still have all the credibility and tie-in that
0: you want to benefit from the scale of a group. Yeah, just for those who are who are not familiar with moonshot thinking, how can you describe mu- moonshot and moonshot thinking?
1: Moonshots, I think it's, it's very much, I think it's a Google coin term. <laughs> But it's taking the big risky projects, like what are the things, what are the truly disruptive innovations you could introduce? So it could be looking at like new customers all together. It could be looking at brand new technologies. It's really thinking on the disruptive side. And that's versus thinking more incrementally, which is what most big companies do. All the stability from a big company comes from thinking incrementally and you you just don't see disruption come very often from a big company moonshots are the opportunity to think about that like if we want to go to the moon how are we going to do it what what's big how can you take that big big swing and look at how we really fundamentally question the assumptions that our business is built on in some ways
0: yeah you have been working in different cultures dif- different large and small organization what what would you say is the difference between entrepreneurship and innovation? Because there are some things which are the same or people think it's the same. What, how how would you differentiate that?
1: Yeah, I think entrepreneurship, I think, is interesting. I feel like I've also heard the term intrapreneur, mm. and I consider myself an intrapreneur in that I'm within a big company, but thinking very entrepreneurial about how we approach things. I think innovation in general is just the methods of, of how you change and do new things and keep very fresh perspective on processes. I think to be an entrepreneur, it feels like you have to be starting your own company or doing your, your own initiative, very small teams. And then I think there's kind of this middle ground of entrepreneurs who are people who think with entrepreneurial values, um, but do so within a big organization. I think the, the beauty is I think smaller teams, entrepreneurs can be much more nimble and flexible and adjust and pivot and move quickly. But I think bigger companies are more closely tied to practical applications and big companies know how to scale so well. So I think what each team does is a little bit different. And the magic is kind of that in between when they can figure out how to work together in that win-win relationship, when when you can think, think nimbly like an entrepreneur, but have the ability to scale like a big
0: company. Yeah. So taking that to the next level, so while you have been working in different companies, you have as well worked in different cultures, like you already mentioned, What what is the difference working with innovation in the different cultures you have been in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think
1: it's interesting, especially the the companies I worked at have all been driven and structured around different functions. So I would say GE is very engineering-based, Ikea is very design-based, and Starbucks is at its core a marketing company. What's really fascinating to me is the processes for innovation have all been the exact same. It's human-centered design, We've had different words for it. At GE, we called it um, lean startup through co-creation. At IKEA, it was co-creation and looking at people values or what motivates the person. At Starbucks, we use d-school methods of human-centered design um, this from the Stanford Design School. But fundamentally, they're all just design thinking. Like it's literally just talking to your stakeholders along the way and then mixing that in with frequent testing What's interesting to me is that process, the way you have to sell it into an organization is completely different depending on what their core values are um, mm-hmm. and their, their, their kind of structure of how they were built. So at GE, what really worked was like talking about testing and data. It was all like engineered, like they love data. If you could do a spreadsheet and a chart, you were done. What IKEA really liked to hear was consumer insights and being able to kind of shape a narrative of, of your design journey from that insight. And what I'm finding at Starbucks is it's a lot about storytelling. So how do you use this process to create the compelling story for why this innovation is so important? And where in GE, we communicated in like spreadsheets, basically. At IKEA, it had to be beautiful PowerPoints. I and mean, it feels like now we're moving almost creating videos and demos that show technology and kind of highlight a story. So it's been interesting to me that the process is identical, but the way you present the
0: process to an organization is tailored to its DNA. Huh. How was it like when when I talk with the, a lot of innovators from large corporations and so on with there's this term of the internal immune system that's fight, fighting against you when you're an innovator. How was that in the different cultures?
1: Yeah, I think it's been really interesting. One is like being an engineer and growing up in GE, that was my natural home. Mm-hmm. So, and I assume that if you show somebody data, like literally in a spreadsheet, they would understand and come around to your way of thinking. And that's not at all the way the rest of the world works. Like non-engineered, they, they need to be led into it. They need a story. They need some graphics. So that was a big shock for me. But then culturally as well, I think being very kind of individual at, at GE, you could fight and, and you could kind of make a case. You, you should fight for what you wanted to. And you might need to disagree with people. And that was seen as a good thing. In, in Swedish society in particular, it's a much more social value of everybody should get along and where in the U.S. I can comfortably say, I disagree with you, but I recognize this is your decision. I'm going to fully support that effort. In Sweden, it was like, OK, well, we'll talk next week so we can see if you agree with me and then we'll start the project, which blew my mind. And you had to learn how to say, like, I don't agree with you in a way that could be interpreted as I do agree with you or we wouldn't move forward. And it's because they want to bring everybody along on the journey. But it was a much different process than I was used to. And it, it took some time to kind of understand why it was so different culturally and then interacting with kind of different perspectives. You've got people from all over the world who were working at IKEA, which was fantastic. But understanding just the cultural nuances of, I assume in the US, if somebody's being quiet, that means they agree with you. And in Sweden, if they're being quiet, that means they really don't agree with you and they're not happy with the direction. <laughs> So for a long time, I thought I was having those meetings and we were all in alignment. And it turns out, no, these people were really not in agreement and they were showing it. And I just didn't know how to read the room at the time. There are all kinds of little cultural nuances that I learned to pick up on. What did you do to learn that? I think it took, and this was one of the other things that was hard is, I think Swedes tend to keep a, a smaller network of people and, and it's really hard to kind of get, get Swedish people to warm up to you because they've got a close inner circle, but it's the personal relationships that would really help you learn those sorts of things. Mm. But I was really lucky to find like just personal passions of mine that overlapped with some folks that I worked with. And there were a few colleagues who, so for instance, I'm just super passionate about maker spaces, like 3D printers, laser cutters. I formed great friendships with teammates over these things. And those teammates were the ones I could have the candid discussion around about like, okay, like <laughs> I thought that meeting went well and they're like, oh no, <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. So kind of being able to, to figure out what are the common bounds and form really strong personal bonds and then understanding through those personal bonds what the broader context of the, the culture is or, or how how I'm coming across was super helpful for me.
0: Yeah, I still remember that time in my world as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, the, the other trick is beer. Like, yeah, I, I love that's... craft beer. Um, and use, <laughs> like, just having a couple drinks after work is such a great unlock and just conversation. So, if if common interests don't work, there's always beer. One hundred percent agree, and
0: that's how we met as well. A <laughs> couple of years. It is, <laughs> It was over a beer yeah. or two or three. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's 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 quite interesting that that this cultural aspect, specifically in, in global companies, that's something you need to work with to be able to be successful. So where it's basically innovation is 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 a culture in itself and entrepreneurship is a culture which you need to set up to be able to be successful with innovation but then you need to work on the company culture and as well the culture of the people you you work with all of that is kind of a bigger system on top of each other is different layers to be able to be successful and and that's that's what i've seen in my history as well it's like moving from germany to russia was a completely different culture to work with and a completely different way of interacting and in, and in, engaging with each other so what worked in one place didn't work in the other place and then when you go on on a global level then you need to play all the different strengths and all the different perspectives to be able to be to reach the people that's that's the hardest thing what i've seen as well definitely
1: it was even like talking to you, I think, was one of the biggest things that helped Grounded and find my position at IKEA because I was sitting in product design. You were more in the retail side of the business, but we were both doing innovation within the same company. Mm-hmm. So one of the things was just that, like, I'm not alone. Like you were banging your head <laughs> against the wall trying to get things to move there. But learning what was working well for you within the co- context of com- I, c- I could copy what you were doing and what was working well. And, then and the other think, way around, the same, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, it, find the dead ends that you had already chased down and know,
0: I, I don't need to go down that street because Jens tried it. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's why I'm often when I'm working with larger companies now on innovation topics, I, we always start with the mapping of the different ecosystem players to understand, okay, who is doing similar things somewhere else in the total entire organization, which you could leverage, which you could hook up with, where it's kind of they have you have a common ground with that team or that person to figure out how do you do that? Let's learn from each other. It's it's always interesting when you start mapping these things out, and then it's like, oh, I have never heard about you. <laughs> oh, I've never seen that you do this kind of things. And I've it's just I learned this through mistakes, <laughs> through learning it the hard way. So I'm I'm now trying to bring that value to 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 the clients I work with directly to say, hey, let's have a look who's in your ecosystem and how do we approach that? It makes so much sense. And yeah, I think it's interesting too, if you look at
1: like just the depth of talent that big companies have, like there are areas that I have no experience in. And when I think of like in my startup mind, I want to tackle that project alone and I'm going to try it and do it. <laughs> And then I look at a big company. It's like, there's somebody who's been doing this for 20 years, who's going to be so much better. They're super smart. How can, like, I need to train myself to think through, okay, is this something I need to tackle and I can be scrappy about, or is this something, if we put the right person on it, they can, they can make so much more change. And it's really hard to think about like, okay, what do I really want to accomplish with this project? And now, yeah, who do I need to bring along Because you can't bring along the whole team or you're never going to move, but like which people are important to bring in and and who doesn't need to be included on this project. And that's a really tough line to draw.
0: (laughs) And that's also then, again, coming back to the culture, it's like culturally dependent who you should bring on. Because Mm -hmm. if you take a very hierarchical system, you should bring someone from the top in to get everyone else moving in other systems or cultures like if we take Sweden again, it's not necessarily the CEO or the biggest doc in the hierarchy you should be. It's it's more there will be people who are in the back who are way more influential than even the CEO. One hundred percent, yes. And it, it takes a while
1: to figure that out. And like I think you can know, always point to the people who get shit done in an organization. And like, okay, I I need to talk to them because they know how to navigate the situation. <laughs> They're just yeah. good. And you'll always find those people. So, yeah, I, I try to make friends with the, the people who are moving fast and getting crap done. Mm.
0: And the fun part is that works as well when you establish a business because it's you don't need to start from the scratch with a lot of things. You just look into what are the existing businesses which are similar like I, I'm building or products similar I'm, to, to what I'm building. And then how can you leverage their success and remodel that into your niche, into your product area and say, okay, they have done all the mistakes they have learned over the last 20 years or whatever. How can I take the same way of thinking and just start from there and not starting everything from the scratch, which is often as well the case with startups. They think they need to reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. You worked as well with startups, if I remember right. How how was that being in a corporation working with startups?
1: Yeah, it was a really interesting journey. And I've had the chance to work with startups at, at all three big companies I've been at. I really struggled at GE, it was my first time working with startups um, through first build. And I didn't understand quite the relationship of like to me, everything was very transactional in my head. It's like, okay, if we're going to give the startup the space and we're going to help them with prototyping, what do I get from them as a big company? And I was trying to think, okay, are they do we negotiate a portion of their money before we even talk to them? Like, how do I make sure we capture the value from that relationship, which is the completely wrong way of thinking about it? I now recognize like. Just having them around was so inspiring and like kicking our butt in the right direction of how we should think about things that we should have offered any startup who wanted free space to come in because being able to just ask them a question when it came up or witness the way they approach problems was so incredibly valuable. And I think it took me some time to realize that. At Ikea, what I really liked, we did a uh, startup boot camp where we would actually bring the startups in to work with Ikea for basically the course of like a three-month program. And one of my favorite things that, that we did at Ikea was structure it so it wasn't looking very specifically at the projects themselves. It was making sure that those teams were aligned from a value standpoint with what mm-hmm. Ikea was hoping to achieve. So sustainability was a huge, uh, it is still a huge priority for, I think, most companies. But I really saw that IKEA was thinking about startups within a sustainable lens and who would we want to work with and what could the potential directions be? And it was, again, that that process of rather than trying to think of what the value exchange was, like what is IKEA monetarily getting from a startup? It was about wanting to work with them and seeing like what can we teach these startups At IKEA, they understand scale maybe better than anybody. Like, we we can do a lot of things. We can take it globally really quickly. We are not so nimble, and we don't think entrepreneurially. How do we just kind of bring our teams in and let them learn from the startups and what the startups are good to do, but then give the startups a kind of sneak peek behind the curtain of, like your idea is great and it works for this one store. This is how many stores we're going to need to launch in. This is how many languages you need to be able to work in just to think about launching really open their eyes where I think a lot of those projects, they weren't going to work, but you don't know until you try. And typically you'd learn so quickly over those three months. And that's what it's about. If the relationship isn't good, let's, let's talk, let's get everything on the table and figure it out where I think Some big companies will talk to startups like a little bit over the course of two years. We're going to touch base once a month. That startup's life completely changes every month. It's a different team. And unless like just condense that conversation down,
0: if we're going to do it, let's do it. And if we're not, let's not. So from your perspective, what's working with innovation? What's not working with innovation? Oh, that's a big one. One thing that I'm, I'm super curious about is just
1: how, how can you get the entrepreneurs to work with big companies and kind of how do you cross that divide between the scale? And then the other thing that, that's really on my mind a lot is I think when I hear entrepreneur or innovator, when I hear innovator, I think of the entrepreneur who's on his own, like fighting his way through a project, figuring out the way to get stuff done. But when I think of the best, innovations it's always something that's a collective of kind of diverse perspectives and teams coming along so i think where the big opportunity is is to think of as an innovator how do i empower the people around me to innovate and to come into that innovation system and i think it's it's not about the ideas i have it's not about the ideas anybody on my team has it's about the best ideas And I think even the best entrepreneurs I've seen, we get so attached to the idea itself or who came up with it that we're no longer listening and we're missing out on the best opportunities. So I think it's really hard. You've got to have a lot of confidence and a lot of like self-drive to be an entrepreneur. But I think there's kind of a a risk in that of becoming too attached to what you've come up to rather than looking for the
0: best, regardless of where it came from. There's a saying, like, speed over perfection. What, What are you thinking about that? Yeah, I think this is hard because I'm personally a perfectionist.
1: So in my personal life, I like to be, I like to have it 99%. But when it comes to work projects, just by nature of what I like to work on, it's the early, early portion of the project. So don't put me on something you want to roll out nationwide. That's not what I'm good at. But in in my case, it's all about speed on the early side and testing as fast as possible and getting an understanding of where the project should go. So I I am constantly trying to figure out like what is good enough and where do we have good information? And the reality is like if I can get 80% of the work done in 20% of the time, I shouldn't waste the extra time in finishing up that 20% because we're going to know so i think in in innovation and particularly early in the stage in innovation it's all about the speed i think it's just yeah it's it's a simple math equation to me of if if i've got what good innovation is maybe 5% successful then you need to do 20 projects before you're going to find the one that's successful so let's let's start cranking get through as many projects as we can and then it just comes down to figuring out when do you know you've got something successful and you've put enough work in to know whether it's going to when it whether it
0: could succeed or not yeah if you would have the possibility to work on an innovation project in any of the companies in the world which a project that that's kind of that's that's met where, where which everyone in the whole world will see or attached to be attached to experience what what would it be what what would the project be you would love to work on
1: Oh that's super interesting yeah I think one that's really top of my mind right now. And it it comes from just where we are sitting in a pandemic and then sitting in the U S where it's become like political, basically the actions to avoid a pandemic. And what's interesting to me is like, again, my default mind would be go to science and data and we're presenting science and data and we're processing it in different ways where we have different truths. What I would be super excited about is working with sociologists to figure out like, okay, if it's behavior, we want to change How do we go about driving a change in behavior and particularly in the U.S. where everything's so political and polarizing right now? How do we bring people together? And maybe it's around the pandemic. Maybe it's around other issues. But it seems like in, in a company, I just think about like, how can we be productive? How can we come together to get things done? And in a political arena, it doesn't feel like we're there right now. We're, we're How do we drive further? How do I beat you? Not how do we find the win-win opportunity? Mm-hmm. And win-wins are what makes the world go round. But I think maybe more exciting on the global front is just sustainability and seeing that like every, every company, GE, IKEA, uh, Starbucks everybody's super big on sustainability right now and figuring out how do we make that work. And I think like figuring out meaningful change from sustainability, how do we set up a structure that allows people to innovate on their own and come together where right now we're just not thinking collectively about the environment. I think there's a ton of
0: potential there. Slowly getting to an end. If you look forward for a year from now, what do you think? Where, where will you be? I'm so excited
1: about, well, we, we've already decided we're not coming back to the office until October of 2021. But what's exciting for me is when you think about like just how we work, I think in some ways I've learned so much about working remotely. I never want to go back to commuting again. Like that's ter- mm. Like I have been able to spend months with family, months with friends, like just living there and working remotely. And that is such a cool thing. I think we haven't wrapped our heads around when we go back to work, what that's going to look like, where everybody says like, maybe two days a week, I'm going to be in the office. What I'm not realizing is, okay, only 40% of the people are going to be there when I'm there. Do we still need that big office? And we keep thinking Zoom and Microsoft Teams are going to go away. I think this is going to be an element of our work forever because we're not going to have everybody in the same room. (laughs) And I think, There's going to be a natural muscle memory where we want to go back to everybody being in the office because it feels like what was normal. And we're probably going to go the wrong direction first. And then I think we'll kind of slowly figure out, like, how do we work as big companies in in particular? Just because we've been in these big office spaces, it's been the reality for so long. We've got a lot to figure out there. But then even looking at like co-working spaces for startups, where do our entrepreneurs work when... The physical connection is so important and being able to have that happy hour beer to to bounce ideas (laughs) off each other, but you don't need to come out of your house to accomplish everything. Like I've been able to sit in my room and do all of my work lately. When are the times I go out and meet people and get inspired in person? Can I do that digitally? I think we've got a lot to figure out, and I think the pandemic has forced some of on some of it upon us. And we have found good ways. Now we just need to settle in and figure out how we take the best of of the pre-pandemic world and the
0: post-pandemic world and take it all forward. It will be interesting to exploring that. I mean, we're we're now in January 2021, so I guess the the pandemic will keep us still busy with these topics at least the next half year if not longer to to figure that things out <laughs> for sure and what is the phrase like don't let a
1: perfectly terrible crisis go to waste um, yeah. i think there's been so much change that's driven by it if we don't learn from it this was really painful so we might as well learn some lessons and and take the good and 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 kind of figure out how we go forward <laughs> Yeah,
0: it's, I was just seeing a post the like last year, like who who was the main driver of your digital transformation, your your chief innovation officer, your chief digital officer, or COVID-19. Says <laughs> so it's, it, it's an interesting perspective, especially being in Germany, where digitalization is not not on the forefront, at least where I think it should be. But how do you get inspired and how, what are the things you're, you're following? How, how do you keep yourself up to date on innovation topics and on, on other topics? Yeah, I think the big
1: one for me, very appropriately to talk about on a podcast, I love podcasts. And for me, I, I try to stay pretty physical and active. And I think that's really important for getting my mind going. But I love when I'm out for a bike ride or going for a run, I'm always listening to podcasts. And I feel like it's embarrassing. So like everybody else is listening to upbeat music and I'm listening to innovation podcasts in my ear, <laughs> but I typically reach out to friends and just ask for what cool podcasts they're listening to. And I love if there's something I, that, that clicks with me, um, going back to it. One of my favorites this past week that I've been big on is song exploder. And it's talking about the creative process of artists as they write music which I like, I've got a little bit of a passion for music, but just hearing how a song comes together and the very different approaches that artists take. It's so fascinating to me. And it makes me think again, like you hear how many people go into, like it's not one songwriter who came up with that song. Yeah, it's them yeah. working with their team and this instrumentalist did this piece. When you hear that process, it makes me really think about like, okay, what do I need to be doing at work? And how can I approach this problem
0: completely differently? That's cool. I will, I will share the, the, the link to it as well. Awesome talking to you. Thanks for getting up early in Seattle. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no worries. Great to chat with you always. And it, the sun doesn't come out here much this time of year anyway. So it doesn't matter what <laughs> day it is. Yeah, and I hope we will. I'm not sure if we will manage this year, but I hope at least that we can meet up for a beer and 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 meet in person again. Definitely. I'm, I'm hoping this year, if, uh,
1: if we're not allowed to travel, we'll at least do it virtually and Absolutely. figure out the time difference when we're both
0: allowed to be drinking. Yeah. <laughs> Let's try to do that. Thank you very much, Justin. It was a pleasure talking to you. Great to catch up, Jens. Thank you. Thanks. Hey, this is Jens again. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. If you like what you have listened to, please subscribe to the podcast and share the episodes with your friends and people you think might like it too. If you want to know more about what I'm up to, please follow me on social media or look me up at jensheitland.com. Thank you very much and see you in the next episode.